Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're truly delighted and honored to have you with us in today's very important and commonly asked question, the EB2 versus the EB3 scenario. With me, I have two of my amazing, brilliant, smart Murthy Law Firm attorneys, in attorney Pam Janice, who, as many of you know, is the supervising attorney for the PERM Labor Certification I-140 Department, the Green Card Department. She's also adjunct professor at the University of Baltimore on employment-based immigration. Um, she's got wonderful credentials. You can look at it on the website, but she studied at Mount Holyoke and GW Law School in Washington, D.C. I also have Janelle Oklu, who, who is another attorney, in our, a supervising attorney in the Green Card Department of the Murthy Law Firm. Um, she did her undergraduate at Williams and Mary, her BA, and then from the very prestigious Yale Law School um, in Connecticut. So without further ado, let's get started. In today's teleconference, we really hope that we will offer you as employers and your representatives an explanation of the distinctions between EB2 and EB3 in terms of the green card processing. Obviously, when you hire the Murthy Law Firm or we're processing a case, our attorneys will explain the legal issues and the requirements for these categories, the role that you as an employer will need to play in determining the EB-2, which means the employment-based second or the employment-based third, the EB-3's employment-based third preference categories, and the strategies in order to demonstrate why truly the employer has a business necessity to support the EB-2 classification. Because remember, obviously, as we're going to go get into it, EB-2 is obviously a more sophisticated, requires more education and work experience in general. The session will describe the differences between the USCIS and the Department of Labor guidance on the equivalent education and experience, as well as the challenge of proving that the employee meets the minimum requirements for the position. So, Pam, can you just give us a quick overview on the difference between the EB-2 versus the EB-3? Thank you, Sheila. Fundamentally, the difference between EB-2 and EB-3 are the requirements for the position. EB-2 classification means that the position is requiring an advanced degree professional, meaning that the minimum requirements for the position are a master's degree or its foreign equivalent, or at least a bachelor's degree or its foreign equivalent, plus five years progressively responsible post-baccalaureate experience. Those are pretty high standards to meet. For almost everybody else, they're going to fall into the EB-3 category, which is for skilled workers or professionals, meaning that the position requires at least a bachelor's degree or at least two years of experience. Again, it's the employer's minimum requirements for the position that are going to be the primary means of determining which of these two classifications the case falls into. Very good. So, Janelle, why should it really matter from the employer's perspective whether the employer should process an EB-2 case or an EB-3 case? That's a great question, Sheila. Historically, cases processed in EB-2, that's the second preference classification, tend to move faster toward ultimate green card approval than cases filed in third preference or EB-3. 
As a result, there's a natural inclination for employees to want to push for EB2. Obviously, people want our, their green cards sooner rather than later, and EB2 has shown to be faster. For uh, Just to give you an example, Sheila, if we take, um, for example, the recent visa bulletin, mm -hmm. uh, which would be May 2001, uh, excuse me, May 2011, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, in the employment-based categories, for most countries, for nationals of most countries, EB2 is current, meaning that an individual can move toward the final stage, the I-485 and green card approval without any wait times for a priority date, meaning it's current. Um, for uh, individuals from India and China, which tend to be the two countries that are backlogged for, uh, for employment-based cases, in uh, China, the, uh, the cutoff is August 1st, 2006. And for India, it's a little bit further behind with July 1st, 2006. But nevertheless, 2006. Whereas if we compare those uh, same figures in EB3, for India, the cutoff is April 15th, 2002. Ouch. So obviously there, there's quite a big difference there, and we can see why employees would, as, as much as possible, want their cases to go in EB2. Right, and it's not just going to be four years longer because EB2 versus EB3. According to Charlie Oppenheim, the head of the Department of State Visa Control and Immigrant Control Un Visa Control Unit, he thinks that it could take 20 to 40 years in EB3 for people born in India and approximately about 20 years in EB2. So from an employee's point of view, you can understand, especially having many you know, people who have gone through the process can appreciate, um, even if they love their jobs and their employers and they want to stay there till they're old and gray, it just feels like... You know, it's like finishing an exam. You want to get that done so that you can focus on the rest of your life. But this EB2 and EB3 ends up taking up a huge por mm -hmm. portion of the individual employee's, um, you know, sleepless nights or tension or what have you. Okay, so, so let's go through a couple of scenarios, Pam, um, if we can. For example, if the employee has a master's degree... Why can't the employer just list the employee's master's degree as the minimum requirement for the job? What's the problem with upping the requirements for, to fit into the EB2 category? Well, Sheila, that's actually a very common question, and I would say there are four potential problems there. Number one, and most importantly, is good faith. The employer is signing that labor certification under penalty of perjury, saying that the requirements they're listing on that form are their actual minimum requirements for the position. Essentially, when the employer is doing a labor certification case, they need to take their employee out of the equation completely. They need to pretend that they have an empty cubicle and they need to hire someone for that cubicle. And what is the minimum education experience for that position? If they take the employee out of the equation, then EB2 versus EB3 shouldn't really be a factor. So the first major issue with that, with upping the requirements to fit the case into EB2, is good faith. The second one is, a lot of times these positions um, have what's called job zones that 
would not normally fit into EB2, meaning the Department of Labor thinks that the normal amount of education experience is less than that of an advanced degree professional. So anytime the employer lists requirements that are higher than that, they're going to have to demonstrate something called business necessity. And in the past, cases like that have sometimes triggered audits, which can significantly slow down the processing of the case, and in some cases even lead to a denial of the labor certification, where Department of Labor thinks you don't really require a master's degree for this position. The third major problem, I'd say, is did the employee actually have those qualifications at the time that you hired them? If you hired someone straight out of a bachelor's degree program and they had no prior experience, and now all of a sudden you're saying we require a bachelor's plus five, how did you hire them in that first instance? So did the person actually have the credentials when you hired them? And then the fourth problem is something that's a recent development, I'd say, where there could be a potential conflict between what you said were the requirements for the position when you filed the H-1B and what you're saying the requirements are now for the green card. For example, if the H-1B was filed with a labor condition application that said this is a level one wage, meaning it's an entry-level position, maybe a bachelor's degree, maybe two years of experience max. And based on that, you had a very low prevailing wage. If you're now saying that the position actually requires a bachelor's plus five, Department of Labor could come back and say, wait a minute, were you lying on your labor condition application or are you lying on your labor certification? It's very important in this age of increased data mining that employers be consistent in their requirements, especially when they have the same position on their H-1B and on their green card. Okay. It's, uh, actually, they're all very, very, uh, f uh, f you know, really good points that I think you're explaining and making. So, so to kind of follow up on that, Pam, then does that mean that if the employee started off with just a bachelor's and two, that the employer couldn't then just say that the employee's been with me now three or four or five years, or maybe that's a question, you know, a situation we're going to describe later, discuss later, or is it more that, for example, if we just have a master's and nothing else, that in, itself, in and of itself could create a problem because technically then everybody in the world would qualify for that job with just a master's degree. So that's another question or problem for, from the employer's perspective and from the Department of Labor's perspective. Right. I mean, these are definitely issues that can be discussed mm -hmm. in the context of a specific case. It mm -hmm. may be that you hired your person as an entry-level position, but it's been several years, and they've been promoted multiple times to a position that has different requirements. And so it could be that you're filing for a different position. And in some limited circumstances, you could potentially use experience that you gained over the course of your employment. In some limited circumstances, you may be used able to use a, a degree that you required during the course of your employment. But again, they're very limited circumstances. Mm -hmm. For the most part, you're going to be dealing with what education and experience did the person have before they were hired. And yes, you were talking about the possibility of a position where there's a master's degree and no experience. It could be, if that is your actual minimum requirements, Yes, there's the potential risk of having more potentially qualified U.S. workers apply for the job, but at the same time, if that represents your actual minimum requirements, it may be that 
just because the person has the master's degree, it may be that they don't also have the knowledge and ability to do the job. Just because a person graduated doesn't mean that they did well in school. See, and that's the point is the, a lot of times a person may have, for example, a BS and five or six or seven years experience, but that particular company may think that it's a little bit more cutting edge and may not count that experience. They may only say we need a bachelor's in two years, but then after the employee's been with them three, four, five years, they may say, woo, we could now promote them to the senior level position. And so I think we end up having those issues, but I think you make some very, very good points. So ultimately, EB2 versus EB3 is based on the employer's actual minimum requirements for the position, and the employee needs to be prepared to justify those requirements. So I don't know if you've already explained the issue of job zones and business necessity, Pam. Well, I did mention that as one potential problem. Uh Um, And I think we actually had a teleconference on this maybe last year when we talked about business necessity. But the Department of Labor has set job zones for all occupations that list the normal range of education and experience for those. For example, IT professionals all fall into a job zone four, which translates to minimum requirements, normal minimum requirements of a bachelor's plus two or a master's degree and no experience or four years of experience and no degree. That means that any time the employer requirements for an IT professional are greater than that bachelor's plus two, MS plus zero, or four years, the employer would need to be able to justify the business necessity reason for those higher requirements. Um, And in the terms of what business necessity actually means, that means that those requirements are essential to perform the job in a reasonable manner that you could not hire someone with less than that and have them effectively perform the job duties. And there are several ways that you can show that if questioned by Department of Labor. Um, The company's past practice. Have you always hired people with at least those requirements? We have five software engineers, and all five of our software engineers had a bachelor's plus five at the time we hired them. Company's past practice. You can also look to industry examples, other companies that have similar requirements, um, postings online saying this is what we're looking for for a software engineer. You can look at what other people are doing. You can also get expert opinions from professors, uh, people who work in the industry who can describe um, why it is normal for higher level positions perhaps in this industry to have these kind of requirements. You can look to alternate wage data that can identify that these are normal requirements and with these normal requirements you can expect higher wages. Um, In some cases you have companies that are dealing with clients who have their own requirements for you to place employees at their work sites. So it may be that you have language in your contracts or in work orders that say that people placed at this client site must have a certain level of education and experience. Ultimately, it's really a question for the employer. The employer needs to identify why the requirement can't be less for this specific position with this specific employer. Why does the employer require this? Ultimately, you need to be consistent. Everybody wants EB2, like Janelle was describing, but the employer, number one, needs to remember that good faith that I was talking about. And on the practical side, they need to think about things like the salary. We're seeing higher and higher uh, prevailing wage determinations coming from the Department of Labor. 
you may have someone in a position who's making 60, 70,000 and the prevailing wage will come back as 130,000 because of the requirements that you're listing. It's important that the employer be consistent and consider the real world implications of what they're listing on their requirements. Pam, if I can ask you a question, is this Department of Labor's way of trying to squish the case? Because it almost looks like 130,000 isn't the norm for most ID professionals with, you know, a bachelor's in five years. It's not the real world. You go to 100 companies, I know, because we have large companies around. And I know the Department of Labor, you know, and as many of you on the fo on this teleconference today who are participating understand there is a high unemployment, there's still high unemployment. The economy is sort of improving. It's limping along. It's not really, you know, galloping. And so I think there's a little bit of the overall suspicion of any business or company or employer that is sponsoring a foreign national with the feeling like, hey, we have unemployment in America. Why are you bringing all these people from outside to do the work when we have unemployment? So unemployment. So what we're going to do is if you say I need a bachelor's in five or a master's in three, I'm going to say the base salary should be 130000 So you as the employer will quickly have to backpedal and eat your own words. Is there any of that going on by any chance? Well, I would not presume to know what's going on in the mind of the <laughs> Department of Labor, but I would say that it, a lot of this comes back to that job zone issue that I was talking about. Department of Labor is thinking about this in terms of what's the minimum to get yourself into the position. They don't think in terms of high-level skills. They think in terms of minimal. And so all these IT professionals, they're thinking, what does it take to get you into the door? Bachelor's plus two, master's plus zero, maybe four years. And so anytime the employer is listing higher than that, Department of Labor is saying, okay, this is not uh, your more entry-level position. This is a high, high-level position. And they actually have um, a very complicated series of mathematical equations that they use to try and figure out where this uh, position falls. And especially with IT consulting industry, a lot of these uh, positions require that people travel and relocate. And in Department of Labor's mind, they're still thinking in the past, they don't think that that's normal for the industry. And that can actually raise the wage, even if the education and experience requirements don't. So I think the Department of Labor more than anything, is a little behind the times. They don't realize that travel and relocation is the norm now for a lot of these industries. Okay. And if MS or BS plus 5 qualifies for the EB2, why can't the employer just list both on the, both on the LC, Pam? Well, although the USCIS considers the bachelor's plus five to be equal to a master's degree for EB2 purposes, you need to remember that the Department of Labor is dealing with different rules, different regulations. And the Department of Labor thinks that a bachelor's degree is equal to two years of experience. So when you're dealing with Department of Labor, they think that a bachelor's plus two is equal to a master's degree. Likewise, a bachelor's plus five would be equal to a master's plus three. So again, when you're preparing the labor certification, in addition to considering what the employer's minimum requirements are, you need to also consider what Department of Labor's rules are and what USCIS's rules are. There have been instances where the employer has listed MS plus zero or BS plus five, and the Department of Labor has said, we don't think that those are equivalent, and they've denied the case on that basis. So it is definitely risky just to take that approach. You have to consider not just USCIS equivalency, but Department of Labor equivalency as well. 
Wonderful, wonderful. All scary stuff, all good, and I'm glad that you spend pretty much your you know, 24 hours of the day, or I shouldn't say 24, only 12 hours. You only work half day, 12 hours a day figuring this out and working on this because it surely is extremely complicated, and sometimes one plus one doesn't add up to two when you look at USCIS from one side and then the Department of Labor on the other side. So, Janelle, if we can come back to you, I mean, can the employer demonstrate that the foreign national qualifies for the position in terms of the education and experience? And how does that whole thing sort of fall into place? Sure, Sheila, I'd be happy to talk about that. So basically on the subject of education, um, we're looking, we're going to have to look at what the actual labor certification says, because once uh, the labor is certified, the next stage is the I-140 petition. So USCIS is going to look at the certified labor, and they can't ignore any term that's listed on the labor certification. So uh, if... Um, the labor has anything less than master's degree or BS plus five, then the case cannot file as EB2. So to go back to a point that Pam made about uh, the differences in standards between Department of Labor and uh, USCIS, whereas for Department of Labor, they feel that a master's degree is equivalent to a BS plus two, if you were to put master's degree or BS plus two on the labor cert, then the case would actually go EB3. Correct. Because BS plus two is something less than BS plus five. Mm -hmm. So uh, the USCIS, they have their own way that they're looking at foreign equivalent education. For the USCIS, they compare the education system in the foreign country with the US education. And one thing you have to keep in mind that it's not just university education versus university education in the U.S., but they're actually looking at the entire education system, meaning how many years of education led up to that university degree, uh, meaning in the secondary education, was it primary and secondary? Was it 12 years before someone started university, or was it 13 years before someone started university? And a lot of school, the vocational, mm -hmm. it's sometimes after 10 years, which can be a big problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So the standard, in fact, that USCIS is following is that of the ACRO-EDGE. That's the American Association of College Registrars and Admissions Officers. Their database is the Electronic Database for Global Education. This is what USCIS ah, is Ah, so that's the edge at. that people talk yes. about because I'm sure you have heard terms like ACRO and EDGE as employers. Mm -hmm. Well, Janelle just explained what's ACRO and what's EDGE, what it actually stands for. Exactly. So um, I'll, I'll give you an example of a, a common case dealing with uh, equivalency in education, and that is Matter of Shaw. The, in Matter of Shaw, it was determined that the bachelor's needs to be a single source four-year degree for EB2, meaning not a combination of education. If someone is using um, a combination of education to equal that bachelor's, then it's actually going to be an EB3 case, okay? However, so there's a, a distinction okay. to be made here. Whereas I said you can't use a combination of education, um, uh, combination of education will be EB3, a 
culmination of education, it's possible to uh, get that for EB2. Meaning, let me give an example. Say someone has a three-year bachelor's degree from an Indian university. And then afterwards, uh, based on the bachelor's, they enter a master's degree program that's two years. So the three years bachelor's and the two years master's will be the equivalent of a U.S. bachelor's. That is not a combination, but rather it's a series of education that will be determined to be equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's. So someone like that, that, that person would be able to pursue an EB2 case. So you're saying a person with a three-year degree, which is very common in countries like India or the United Kingdom or Canada with three-year bachelor's degree, plus then they do a two-year master's, it's only the equivalent of a bachelor's. Uh, the Plus example, one year. Sorry, the example I gave was specifically with India, because remember what I said that USCIS, they're also looking at the education you had before university. So some of these other uh, uh, systems, they had 13 years ah. of secondary before. So that's why some of these countries mm. that have three-year degrees, such as the UK, the individuals, actually the students had 13 years before they entered university. Mm. So they would be able to go. But specifically in the Indian example, three years bachelor's plus two years master's degree would be the equivalent of a U.S. bachelor's. Uh, but let me give you another um, example of trying to combine education where it would not qualify for EB2. And that example would be if someone had, say, a three years bachelor's from an Indian university, and then they had a one-year post-grad diploma. Very common. Very, very that, common. That is a common scenario. Now, for that, the USCIS would consider that to be a combination of education, and it could not be used for EB2 purposes because it wouldn't be considered to be a single source degree. Okay, so let's just understand this. You're saying the BS plus the MS equates to a bachelor's because both are from accredited universities and a proper degree. So mm -hmm. that's why it equates most yes. likely to a bachelor's versus the three-year bachelor's degree mm -hmm. after the same 12 years of high school in right. both cases, but the one-year postgraduate PGD, whatever they call it, PGDCA all the time, mm -hmm. postgraduate diploma in computer applications, that's not going to be equ equivalent in the combination because the one-year diploma was not from an accredited university. Even if it was from an accredited university, the problem is, is that it's not a degree. And so if it's not a degree, specifically that word degree, mm. if it's just a diploma, then it is going to be considered a combination of education, not a culmination of education resulting in a single source degree. Got it. Got it. And on this same issue of um, education not being a degree, another common uh, scenario that we encounter is with individuals who have education from uh, a non-university institution. For example, the Institution of Engineers or Institute of Costs and Works Accountants. Um, in those cases, even though in the foreign country it's considered the equivalent of a bachelor's, that will not be considered the equivalent of the U.S. bachelor's for EB2 purposes. So someone who has this type of non-university education, in fact, such a case would go EB3. 
And that's what a lot of people get really upset because they're like very, they feel like, oh, I've spent so many years of my life being a CPA or a CA, a chartered accountant in, in a country like India. It's very, very prestigious, much more prestigious than just doing a bachelor's degree in accounting or a bachelor's degree in commerce. And when they come here and we say, oh, no, you have a CA and 10 or 15 years experience, you're still not going to qualify I think now they're beginning to realize because they're seeing their friends go through this. But in the mm -hmm. beginning, I remember I would have a lot of resistance and people are very upset with mm. the process and think it's so unfair for the government to do stuff like that. Um, Pam, can you talk a little bit about the experience aspect of this? Yes, y'all. In the context of EB2, for those people who are qualifying based on a position that requires a bachelor's plus five, sometimes they run into the problem of can they sufficiently demonstrate that they meet the experience requirement that's connected with the education portion. Specifically, when you're dealing with, with experience, you need, ideally, letters from current or former employers that include the name, address, and title of the writer, and a specific description of the duties performed. The problem is, is that this is not common for most employers. A lot of people just get cert experience certificate or a simple letter that confirms this person worked for us as a programmer from this date to this date. And USCIS wants more details. For ex proving the experience, you need to show that it is progressive in nature. So a lot of times people have difficulty obtaining these letters in the required format. When you can't obtain that letter, um, there is some, sec some secondary options. You have to prove that it's not available and provide two or more affidavits from people who had knowledge that you were doing that job and can provide a description of your job duties and any secondary evidence. Um, offer letters, relieving letters, um, deputation letters, uh, letters saying that they were promoted, pay stubs, W-2s, um, immigration documents like H-1B approvals or L-1 approvals, anything secondary that can show. Ultimately, when you're dealing with EB-2, you need to show, number one, that the experience was progressive in nature, meaning progressively more responsible, that you, mo you kept moving up, that you gained additional knowledge, additional tools. And number two, you need to show that that experience was post BS degree. And for those people that are using that culmination of education that Janelle was talking about, a three-year degree plus a two-year degree, you need to show that that experience was after that two-year master's degree. So for example, let's say you have an individual who completes a three-year bachelor's degree and then goes to work for a couple years and then goes back and gets a two-year master's degree and then goes back to work for a couple years. You're only going to be able to use the experience that was after the master's degree. You can't use the experience that was between the bachelor's degree and the master's degree. If it was a three-year If bachelor's. it was a three-year underlying bachelor's uh -huh, degree. Uh -huh. You know, this area is so, like, almost fascinating, scary, overwhelming. No wonder employers and employees sort of really begin to scratch their head and say, how the heck does this work? What does it mean? And I really hope that with my two brilliant colleagues today, Pam Janice and Janelle Oklu, we've been able to shed some light for you as employers, as businesses, trying to figure out how to accommodate the needs of the business to retain some of your top, smart, bright talent, uh, appease the employee's uh, sort of you know, request to try to upgrade the case 
And I say upgrade, it's not a technical term, upgrade the case to an EB2 case. Uh, just to step back a little bit, because I know most of you are very sophisticated businesses and companies, um, but some of you are newer in the game. Some of you are HR managers that don't do a lot of processing of green card cases. So just to step back a little bit, because we're very cognizant of the 30 to 45 minute time slot, and we're well within that right now, um, is that please understand that what we've explained in the last, you know, about 25, 30 minutes really has to do not just with the labor certification, as both Pam and Janelle explained, but primarily, even though it's with the labor certification, because that's when you file the case. And that's when you make a preliminary determination, which will then, like the foundation of a house, set the stone for the rest of the process. You as both Pam and Janelle explained, it not only can impact how the labor is filed or the PERM, what we call the permanent electronic review management process, but also the I-140 where the USCIS gets involved. So we're talking about both stage one of the green card, where you show the U.S. Department of Labor that there's no available U.S. worker that can do this job with the minimum requirements. And the second is now you're showing the USCIS that you as the employer has the financial ability to pay this employee and the employee qualifies. And then the third stage, which we're not touching upon in today's, that we did not touch upon in today's discussion has to do with the adjustment of status or filing the 485. So those are the three major stages of the green card. And today's discussion focused on primarily stage one, but also stage two to the extent that we have to interact the two. Um, sometimes I know we get asked questions, okay, you know, should I file an EB3 first just to lock in a priority date? This can be particularly useful, I think, as Janelle pointed out earlier, for citizens or nationals of people, particularly from India and also from China, because the EB3 is very backed up for every country in the world, but even more so for China and India. And sometimes by locking that in and then getting a little more ambitious or a little greedy and trying to do the EB2 could be an option for some people. Um, as I said, the Department of State Visa Bulletin does say, talk about the huge number of filings that are going on with green card cases, especially in EB3, but also in EB2 for uh for, country, for nationals. And now the move, numbers are moving a little bit faster for India right now because we are getting the unused numbers from the employment-based first preference category. And if some of you businesses aren't understanding a word what I'm saying, it's okay. It's okay to listen and get a general feel for the subject because ultimately when you hire the best, the number one law firm in the world to process the case for you, you will, we will guide you. We will hold your hand. We will actually give you letters outlining the process, explaining how it works, how to do the interviewing, what by law you as the employer and we as your general attorneys or counsel can and cannot do because some companies and some law firms, as you saw, got into deep trouble with the Department of Labor and where every single case that they process goes through a Department of Labor audit because they felt there was borderline fraud or misrepresentation in the way the companies work processed cases. So you as an employer want to protect the company, want to expand the company, want to hire and retain your best people, but you can only do that if you are able to galvanize the energy, work with the number one law firm in the country to help you and 
guide you properly uh, to make all of this happen. It is a fabulous recruiting mechanism to say that you will process people and that you will do a very thorough job because you are working with the best in the country. We clearly have a lot of experience and we look forward to continuing to guide uh, you as you continue to grow and succeed even in this very difficult, turbulent waters in the economic times that we're leading. Um, do either one of you have any questions or comments? Pam, Janelle? Uh, well, thank you. Thank you all very much for participating today, and we look forward to continuing to guide you as we discuss other hot, useful topics for you and your business. Have a fabulous day, and we'll be in touch. Bye now.